Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have me, sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. Wow. Less than a half mile ago. Gonna break 39 hours. I'm hauling ass. And I'm a crier. <laughs> What's up, monkeys? Monkey Dan here, and welcome to the Live Wild or Die podcast. That clip you just heard was from our guest today, the wild man, Andrew Skirka. That's him crossing the finish line, setting the FKT, the fastest known time for a route called the Fifner Traverse, which is right in my backyard here in Colorado. It essentially runs from Rocky Mountain National Park, follows the Continental Divide south to an area called Berthoud Pass. So, Super excited to talk to him about that, but a little bit more at background about Andrew before we dive into the episode here. So he really became famous in his 20s. He did these three just huge hiking expeditions solo, and let me talk about them real quick. So the first is the Alaska-Yukon expedition that was six months long, and it was 4,700 miles, basically all the way around Alaska. The second one is called the Great Western Loop that was seven months long and 6,875 miles of distance. And the third is called the Sea to Sea Route. That's 11 months, 7,775 miles. And I'm getting this off his website, but only one of these has been repeated and only once. So there are (laughs) adventures that very few people can probably even do, let alone even want to do. So props to Andrew. So he's kind of, he was also kind of the the first people to really define and bring to light this modern fast and like backcountry travel style. So he typically is only carrying like eight to 10 pounds. That's without food and water, but he really kind of defined and set the trajectory for this fast light style in the backcountry covering huge days. He's regularly logging 30 miles per day on the trail. And he's kind of shifted his focus since these, you know, thousand mile trips to these new high routes and long distance running. So some of his high routes include the Yosemite high route, the Fifner Traverse, which we'll talk about in the show, the Kings Canyon high basin route and the wind river high route. Andrew also has a personal best marathon time of two hours, 28 minutes and 24 seconds. He placed 73rd at the 2017 Boston Marathon. That's legit. And his real interest is ultra running. He's completed six 100-mile races. He's finished in the top three at the Leadville 100. That's the race that became famous from the book Born to Run. The Run Rabbit Run 100. The Bighorn 100. And the Volcano Ultra Trail 100K. And... Andrew's also a guide. He runs a guiding service. His website is andrewskirka.com. You can find him on Instagram at andrewskirka. And he's really, he just got, I really appreciate his approach to just the outdoors, backcountry travel. He's got a ton of awesome articles, just so much information on his website. And if you're someone that's maybe wanting to learn how to backpack, there's probably no better person to learn from. So if you're interested, check out Andrew's website. They're taking applications right now for the 2021 trip season. So please enjoy the show. And thanks again to the wild man, Andrew Skirka. Here we go. So how's the guiding business been with COVID and everything? How, how was last year and what's it like looking forward? 
Um, yeah, so last year was, um, it was challenging. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, it was actually like, um, it was actually like successful in the scheme of things. Like we, we were able to start running trips in July and we ran, um, we ran trips in July and August. Um, we lost some trips in September, um, actually because of wildfires oh, um, right. and we, wildfires actually ended up having a bigger financial impact on the program than COVID did. Ironically. And then uh, we finished the season in October uh, with trips that had been postponed uh, back from April and May. So we still ran, um, I think, uh, you know, we had, we started with capacity for maybe like 200, it's like 230 or 240 clients um, uh, with COVID took out about 30 spots and then wildfires knocked out another like 30 or 40. So, um, but all in all, like I can't complain. Like I don't own a restaurant. I don't own a cruise boat. I don't own a gym. Uh, like, you know, I am, I'm, I'm fortunate. Um, and my wife is able to work from home. So it's been, hasn't like impacted us, um, like financially a whole lot. Um, and we've been able to stay healthy too. Same thing with like my family and like sisters and most of my friends. So, um, and then next year, I think next year looks really good. I actually just opened registration for uh, 2021 yesterday and the registrations are really strong. I mean, it's like, um, I don't, I, I don't even know what to make out of it. Well, so it was just like the first day. Um, so we'll see if like the trend continues, but sure. I've got a feeling that 2021 people just want to GTFO. Right. <laughs> like Absolutely. I uh, just can't wait to get outside and get out of this stuff and like have some semblance of normality. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. It's been, I, at first I was like, Oh yeah, it'll never be the same with gyms and all that. But I feel like there's almost going to be a bigger backlash of people just pent up angst to get out. You know what I mean? I think, I think the pendulum is going to swing the other way. Right. Um, I, I do think that it's going to take, I do think it's going to take a while for a lot of policies to unwind. Sure. Um, like I, I wouldn't throw away your mask yet. Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, I think it'll be a while until, um, like, you know, indoor dining, like you don't think twice about it. Um, I, th- I think, you know, we'll still have cases all the way through the summer and into the fall. I mean, there's going to be still be a large percentage of the population that's not, not vaccinated. Um, this virus is still going to be floating around. Sure. Uh, so I do think it's going to be a while still, but yeah, I think, um, I do think, I, I do think like at least is you know, these vaccinations, especially take cold, like, you know, the most vulnerable of our population is going to be protected. And then at that point, like, I don't want to be like, belittle it but like it is for the most part the flu for people who uh are younger and healthy sure so so that should help um but i just think people's tolerance for for like locking themselves indoors and not interacting like not being social creatures is just you know that's a probably a very um probably have already exceeded their threshold and now they're just going crazy and this winter's not going to help. Right. Right. No, absolutely. So, um, speaking of getting out, I want to dive into the FKT you set on the Fifner Traverse this last summer. It was crazy. I was watching people on Strava and it was like, you know, the smoke and COVID and all this stuff, but people were out crushing it. I saw you set the Fifner FKT, uh, excuse me, the Fifner FKT. I think, um, was it Kyle Richardson that was on the LA freeway? 
or Cordis. Oh, I can't he, remember which who, one. What didn't he do this right. summer? Kyle is he just on another level oh, athletically. Yeah. And then uh, Simone going like from Wyoming mm-hmm. to New Mexico, yeah. pretty much. It's just so wild. Yeah, yeah. But can you talk about uh, what is an FKT and then just what is sure? The yeah, so an FKT is the fastest known time, and it's a it's a it's I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't know what to call it, a movement an interest a uh, a niche sport. Um, but it's really kind of taken off in the last couple of years. Um, a lot of it was so you can kind of like almost like there's a couple of guys be really behind it who've been pushing it. One is Buzz Burrell, another is Peter Backwin. These guys are both both based in Boulder, and uh, they're in the twilights of their career now. Buzz is Buzz is my dad's age. Buzz is sixty. I think he's sixty nine now. So he's kind of done athletically, but he's been he's sort of at the forefront of FKTs in in his day, and now and then he like with the with the internet and like and social platforms was able to really um, make it a thing. And this year the FKT thing just went nuts because all the races were canceled. And I'm, you know, I'm a case in point there. I, I was in, I'd been training all winter for the Colorado marathon, which is scheduled at the beginning of May. I was planning on getting Boston qualifier so I could run Boston when I was 40, uh, would have been running it this spring. Um, and uh, yeah, so the uh, COVID hits in March, and then it was like, well, like okay, like so, how's this going to play out? And then you just see these like lockdowns starting, and then like uh, you know the Boston Marathon cancels, and you're like, okay, well, you know Boston cancels, but that's fifty thousand people. Like you know, you know, the Colorado Marathon, that's only like a thousand, so maybe maybe it'll hold. And then the Colorado Marathon cancels, and then like, oh boy, and then it's like, well, like um the Colfax marathon is two weeks later and that's, they haven't canceled yet. So I'm keeping my eyes on Colfax and they canceled. And then I was looking at uh, revel, which is up in uh, like uh, evergreen uh, comes down to 87. And, uh, and that was the beginning of June and that one canceled. And then I'm like, oh, you know, <laughs> so then I start looking at races like in South Dakota and Utah thinking like, no way is like a race going to get canceled because of COVID in South Dakota or Utah. And sure enough, those races got canceled. So here I am. I'm like, I'm in like great marathon shape. I was like ready to bust out like a low two thirties and like, well, what am I going to do with all this fitness? So you know, the FKTs just um, became a subject of uh, infatuation for a lot of people because it was an opportunity to athletically push themselves um, in a, outside of a race environment. Oh, absolutely. And can, can you describe Fifner, just kind of overview where it is, what it looks like? Yeah. Yep, sure. So the Fifner Traverse is a, it's a 76-mile high, ro- high route between uh, Milner Pass in Rocky Mountain National Park and Berthoud Pass, which is uh, um, Highway 40. Uh, in Colorado. And so it's basically traverses like the heart of the front range, um, goes through Rocky Mountain National Park, the Indian Peaks Wilderness and the James Peak Wilderness. And it, uh, it doesn't stay um, on top of the continental divide the entire way on um, there are sections where it is right on top, but for the most part, it's a little, kind of a little bit off to the West. And it's um, following like a really, like a really high bang for the buck aesthetic route. Um, about uh, 40% of that route is off trail. So there's no, um, there's no like man-made hiking trail. And then, um, and the off-trail sections range from like blissful alpine tundra to elk trails to talus to, um, like steep gnarly, like technical shoots, like not semi-technical, like class three plus class, almost class four shoots. Yeah. Uh, so it's, um, it's a, it's a great 
objective for um, individuals who are um, wanting to do a harder backpacking route um, or who are looking for a long trail run that is like much more adventurous than just your standard like mountain run. And it can be done uh, end to end. So in that case, like 76 miles or uh, it can be done in sections. So I think like the shortest the shortest reasonable section that you can do is maybe like 15 miles okay. and then like longer loops up to about 40. Okay. Okay. Yeah. What, one thing I'm always curious about, I've done, I've done, let's see, I think I've done three 50 Ks and you know, just some kind of like local loops, like Pawnee Buchanan stuff like that. I've done rim to rim to rim, but I'm not even close to the times you guys are putting up, but I'm, I'm always so curious, like how much are you hiking versus running on something like Fifner? Because <laughs> I just question. I can't imagine yeah. running the whole thing. So we'll think about it this way. So it's seventy six miles, and I did it in a little less than thirty nine hours. So it's like barely two miles an hour for sure. Um, now what you're missing though is that like so I shouldn't even talk about the Fifner in terms of my, mileage because um, the horizontal distance is so irrelevant to how long it takes you to do it. The important thing is that it has. Uh, let's see, is it, it has? I'm just trying to remember the exact number. It has. 30,000 vertical feet of climbing, it ends up basically being like 800 vertical feet up or down per mile, which, um, you know, if anyone kind of understands what that might look like, I mean, you're basically just endlessly climbing steeply up or steeply down. Um, And so if you compute it in terms of like vertical per hour, that might be a more fair way of looking at it. And that number would be a little bit more impressive. Okay. Okay. And I was, I was looking at, I saw your post before you went out and you'd mentioned, I think it said you brought like, you had like three pounds of food pack, but what, what was your, what did your fuel look like for the FKT fuel for, uh, when you did fifth like this last summer fuel or like, oh, I'm sorry. Fuel. What was your food? Food. Oh yeah. I, I my food, <laughs> food wasn't great. It was just sort of like what was left in the food barrel downstairs. Okay. okay. Uh, it was just like, you know, I have some, my primary gig is I would do a lot more backpacking and run, you know, run a lot of these guided trips. So, um, and August is a really busy time of year for me. Uh, like I had just gotten back from California from guiding trips there. I was just about to leave to guide trips down the San Juans. So I'm trying to like squeeze this like pretty epic you know, FKT in the middle. So I'm like downstairs rooting around and I'm like, all right, well, what do I have? And I've got like protein bars and cliff bars and M&Ms. And I'm like, well, this isn't exactly like ultra marathoning food, but um, I don't feel like going out to the store right now. And, um, so, so that's what I went with. And it was a little difficult. Like that was actually one of my regrets. Um, uh, you know, if you're pushing yourself hard, um, it's, it's, um, digesting food and like your appetite is, or your appetite is like pretty bad. And then digesting food is tough. Um, if you do that and then you're at altitude, like any, like at least 10,000 feet and the, the trail or the route is like the route kind of goes between 10 and 13 and it's very steady. I think it might drop below 10, maybe like two or three times and like bar- just barely for like, you know, half mile kind of thing. And then it bounces right back up. Um, so like digesting a, or like eating a, a protein bar when you're like a day into this effort and you've got you know, 15,000 vertical feet of climbing on your legs and you've been sucking air at 11, 12,000 feet all day. It's just, just not not what you want to be doing. Yeah. Do you <laughs> so do you, like, do you do anything with electrolytes specifically? Because that's always 
I always have an issue with hydration more than anything at help at altitude. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I, because of the food that I was eating, I didn't feel like I needed to be taking like additional salt tablets. Okay. Um, yeah, it seemed, it seemed okay. I mean, you know, if you're eating, I remember like what I had for salty stuff. I imagine that there were probably like some Fritos or some Pringles or something in there somewhere. Right. And like, that's got quite a bit of salt in it. Um, sure. That's cause that's what happens when you're like, when you're running an ultra and all that you're drinking is like sugary drink type things and goos and like, you know, like the gel type stuff, there's not a whole lot of salt in there. So your, your body, you basically sweat out all the salt or pee out all the salt. And now you're, now you're low on, on sodium potassium to try to deliver those nutrients to your muscles. Right. So, but I think on a backpacking diet, you get plenty of salt. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah that was one thing I think I just, I've noticed that more so than anything when I, when I'm really heavy on the solid altitude, I just, I hold water so much better than I feel like most of the time I just kind of flushing out my system. I don't know if that's just a individual thing or, or what the deal is, but yeah, not sure. I mean, I think um, nutrition is very. There's some like some ground rules for nutrition, but I think um, it really varies uh, for each person. Sure. And then even with just each outing, I mean, just like it's pretty crazy. Like I've done enough ultras, and there's really it seems to be like no consistency with what with what I've been wanting to eat. Right. Like I remember, like when I, I did UTMB in 2017, and like I survived the entire time eating like like chocolate bars and sausage which is like i had never in any other race had been eating that but it just it was there it was in the tents and that's what looked good to me as i went down the line of food sure so sure quick tangent like just to go give you an idea about how things have changed so they've got these you know you roll into an aid station and just there's this like huge like um like huge salad bowl <laughs> filled with chocolate like chocolate squares oh, nice. and, okay. and you've got thousands of runners coming in and putting their hands in these, in this like communal chocolate pile. Totally. <laughs> like, can you imagine oh, that? Yeah. What is such a, like, what kind of alien world is that? Right. Right. So. <laughs> well, I've, I've always found that fascinating with, cause there's what you eat in training that kind of, you're like, okay, this is my training food, but then you go to the event and it's like kind of whatever is there, you know? So I, you know, and I know there's too. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I know I've, I've read and heard kind of anecdotally of guys trying to really like focus on fat, apt- fat adaptation, but yeah, I'm curious, has that ever something, is that something you've ever experimented with or? Well, it's something that you can, it's something that helps. Like if you're more fat adapted, that will reduce the amount of calories that you need to be ingesting. Um, because you're, you can be relying on body heat for or, or body fat for some of your some of your energy, but burning body fat is um, it's slow um, and it's. Uh, I think that maybe the analogy would be like. Uh, um, I'm trying to think of one. Um, basically, in, if you're fat adapted, carbohydrates like ingesting carbohydrates end up being like rocket fuel. Right. So you've got like a baseline energy level, but if you can be putting. Um, carbohydrates in the system too, then you're really firing. Right. Right. Absolutely. What kind of taking a step back, what's your athletic background? You ran track in at Duke. Is that correct? Yeah. And okay. I, I started in cross country and track in high school and college. Okay. So yeah, I've been, I'm 39 years old and I've been running um, pretty um, consistently since I've been 14, which is wild to think about now. Right. So, yeah. More than, yeah, that's, uh, it's central to my, to my existence. Like just before I, 
get on this podcast. I was out for a quick hour. Tomorrow will be an hour and a half. And um, so, like, uh, yeah, the whole um, for me to do like very traditional running, like to run a marathon, that is like totally in line with what I've done historically. Um, it extends out to the backpacking though, because it's basically like um, a lot of people think of backpacking when they think of backpacking, they think of like Bill Bryson or, um, or uh, you know, like the woman who were wild, right? Mm. It's like this uh, um, people wearing boots, carrying a very large, like, like a person on their back, almost right. like a house on their back. Um, and it's rest and relaxation and it's campfires and kumbaya and like fishing and, um, and the style that I have taken to much more is like an like a, a runner's approach to long distance backpacking. So it's fast, it's light, it's hard, it's uh, like intentional pursuit of physical challenge. Right. Do you think I, I did a long hike? I was my I have two daughters. It was my pre baby spirit quest. I did the John Muir Trail, um, and I noticed I did a lot of running to train for. It. And then once I actually got out there, it didn't actually. I felt like it took me three days on the trail to really find my stride. Versus the hiking seems to help me with running. Do, have you found that at all, or does it seem to cross over pretty well? Oh, so that's interesting. So, so my experience has been. Um, uh, so the best training that you can do for hiking is to hike like period. Like the, it's, it's, it's very sports specific training. Um, the issue with training for hiking by hiking is that who the hell has t- the time for that? Right. Right. <laughs> like, to get in a good like hiking workout, you, you're looking at at least like at least two hours. Um, it, and frankly, like all day is better. Um, and, uh, I don't have the time for that. I also don't have in like my daily, like my daily life. I don't have the patience for it either. I just, things just move too slow for me when I'm out hiking, like in an ordinary existence. So, um, I run, I train for hiking by running and then, um, or at least primarily, but you've got to go put a backpack on every once in a while and, and build and kind of get the, get those pack hauling muscles activated Right. So like, you know, get those, you know, get that, get the weight on the shoulders, put some, force those glutes to really like step into it. Um, it's, uh, uh, kind of create that stability in the knees and the ankles. So usually what I'll do, like I'll, um, maybe starting like a month out and like, and I'm a little bit of a different case cause I've got such a long background and like base of fitness in both these sports. But if I haven't been doing any hiking or backpacking, about a month prior to a trip, I'm going to start going doing laps like in the foothills here in Boulder, carrying a weighted backpack. So I'll usually start with maybe like maybe the first trip out, I'm like at like 30 pounds for maybe 40 pounds. Um, and then I'll build up to about 50. And it's just like basically 50 pounds of like, like flagstones in my backpack, uh, like like the cinder. Um, buy them at Home Depot. They're, they're 12 by 12 squares and they're like a buck, nice. uh, maybe, maybe two bucks and then wrap them up in a towel and throw them in a good backpack. And, um, and you're going to be really careful with that. Cause like when you're carrying around that much weight, um, uh, there's a lot of momentum there. So I wouldn't recommend anyone just like starting out with that, but that's, that's, that's what I'm, that's what works for me. And that does that kind of combination seems, seems to do the trick. Right now going, coming back from hiking, that's actually the harder transition. So, um, 
with a with a when you're running, at least when you're running at a high level, um, the especially and as you get older, the thing that's really quick to go is your turnover and your speed, mm. and sort of what, what what my coach would refer to as like as your running economy. Mm-hmm. So like how um, how quickly are the or the paces that you can run at certain output levels, and if your running economy is really good. Um, that means that you're running fast with like relatively little effort. And when you're running economies bad, you're working really hard, not going very fast. So, and this is why, like when you look at um, athletes from different sports, you're like, well, like why can't Lance Armstrong, at least in his prime, like why could he never run a 230 marathon? Like this is like a world-class, like, like, like once of a generation talent, you know, drugs or no drugs. He was still once a generation talent. Oh, Absolutely. Um, why could he never run a 230 marathon? Which is like pretty casual. Like 230 marathon is like like that doesn't even get you like that doesn't even get you an elite entry at Boston. It's making me feel right? bad, man. <laughs> and and the reason that Lance Armstrong could never do this is because his running economy wasn't there. Like he had the he had all the like the cart the cardiovascular system and he had like the VO2 max and he had the like the muscular strength, but he just his running economy was just never there. Right. Um, and it's the same thing. Why Galen Rupp, if you put him on a bicycle would get smoked by like a bunch of 14 year olds um, because Galen Rupp just doesn't have like, he's not adapted to being on a bicycle. He doesn't have the cycling economy. Sure. So anyway, with, with the running thing or the running and hiking thing, when you, if you've been hiking a bunch and you come back to running, your running economy sucks and it takes uh, several weeks at least to kind of get it back up to acceptable. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Usually it takes me about, somewhere between two and four weeks before I start making little notes in my log. Like, Oh, I felt, felt okay today. Okay. Yeah. What do you, what type of training protocols are you using to specifically improve, uh, economy running economy for running economy? That's a great question. Um, so, uh, the, the best way to improve running economy is by, um, starting with very small, uh, reps or increments. Um, so like a, uh, like a 20 second stride, and you, maybe you do, um, uh, or you could also do hill repeats too, but like, um, so like 20 seconds and maybe like your first time out, you do like four of them or six of them and you separate them. You do them on like two minute cycles. So you'll run like 20 seconds, like just a good stride, like a powerful stride, but you're not sprinting. And then you go on minute and 40 seconds, of like easy jog rest. And then you do another one. Right. And, uh, yeah, that's basically like how all of my training cycles start is with, with 20 to 30 second long intervals. Okay. And then it builds. So you go from 20 seconds or 30 seconds and then, um, and then maybe like two weeks in or like on, in week three, you start maybe doing like a, like 10 by one minute intervals and then like you build up and then it's two minute intervals and then it's three minute intervals. And then you start playing with, with breaks. So it's maybe you do one minute, one minute by one minute um, on a three minute cycle. And then maybe the next week it's like a one minute on a one minute cycle. And then it's the you know, week four is like two minutes with like a two minute on a four minute cycle. So like a two minute rest. And then the next week maybe it's two minutes and then one minute for cycle. Um, and then you would start doing like a adding on like a weekend long run and doing something at some sort of tempo pace. So okay. like a, um, 12, 14, 16 miles. And you do like start like two, three miles at a marathon pace. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. Okay. So you get a, it's, it's all about, it's all about like the building blocks. 
So you, it's kind of counterintuitive because you would think that uh, early in the training cycle, you would just want to be building like endurance. Um, but the issue is that if you just, um, if you don't start training, if you don't start running fast, you just never gain that economy. Right. Well, I played lacrosse all through college and we would kind of do the opposite where we would do the kind of slower base training. And then as the season approached, it do more, you know, speed intensity work. Whereas mm-hmm. it seems like, Oh, Hey kitty. It seems like for, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is my 17 year old, my 17 year old senior kitty. Oh. Um, go ahead. So yeah, I, you know, I think I, I don't know the specifics of training for lacrosse, but, um, you know, I guess the point is to make generated is, results. Yeah. Then, well, and for, for long distance, it was, it's the opposite. You want to start, you want to build the economy first. And then as you approach your event, then you're doing more source specific training. Is that kind of generally how? Guys at your level are approaching it. Yeah, basically. So, okay. like the like the like the um, the crux workout in my marathon training cycles will be um, be like a twenty two or twenty four miler. Okay. Um, one month out from the race and sixteen miles at marathon pace. Okay. And then the thinking is that in the remaining four weeks, um, you don't you're tapering. You're not you're not really like cutting back that much on mileage, but you're tapering. And between the impact of that huge 16 mile marathon pace workout um, combined with additional rest and a race environment, you're like all teed up to, um, to race, to perform your best. Okay. Any of your listeners who have a senior kitty will know that they get very vocal as they get old and very needy. And he is, he's basically, is like taking care of a 95 year old. Oh, sure. I, I, I think we had, like an 18 year old one, maybe would growing up. Mm-hmm. Well, it was like, we had them when I was like, you know, maybe in middle school and then, you know, moving out and it's like, they're still there every time you come back year after year yeah. is crazy. Yeah. I've been with him. He's been, so he was my wife's cat okay. from the very beginning. Like could fit, could fit in his hands kind of, or fit in her hands kind of thing. And now I've been with him. He's been mine for 10 years too. Sure. So pretty important part of the family when you don't have kids. Oh yeah, Absolutely. One thing I wanted to hear your thoughts on was if someone just wants to complete like a hundred K even, let's just say even 50 mile, hundred K hundred miler, how would, what would you suggest to them from a training perspective versus someone that wants to just, that's racing? You know what I mean? Cause that that's, I'm never going to be able to race someone in these events, but there's things I'd like to complete and not get injured. So how, how would you approach that differently? Or at least what would you advise someone to do? So I'll preface this by saying I'm not a coach. Sure. So I can just, it's almost kind of secondhand what I've seen work and not work. Um, I mean, I, the whole idea that anyone is going to race a hundred miles is like for 98% of the runners. And like, that's probably pretty accurate. Like 98% of runners are not going to race a hundred miles. Um, that upper like elite 2% might even be just the top 1%. Like they could race a hundred. Um, but <laughs> I mean, everyone else is just, you know, you're just trying to finish with like, you know, keeping your, keeping your dignity. Right. Um, uh, so, um, how would you how would you train for this? I think the one from my perspective, the one thing that is missing from a lot of people's training is that so they they look at it like a running race, and that's I don't think accurate. I think I think more people should look at it as a very long day in the mountains. And um, if you are gonna if you're training for a very long day in the mountains, you're like you're 
two hour long, like weekend long runs, they're not long enough. They're not long enough. So maybe instead, um, at least as a supplement, you know, you, you should be spending like some all, like all day in the mountains and like maybe go for a backpacking trip and like do like, like two hard, like two hard days with one night. You're carrying a pack, you're spending the night outside, you're like, you know, you're really fatiguing your system. You're on your feet, which is the most important thing. You're on your feet for you know, 14, 15, 16 hours a day. Um, that is going to be the sort of thing that I think really gives you, like, allows you to kind of keep soldiering on in those, in the last half of the race. Right. Right. Yeah. Just, I remember, I think it was after one of these ultras, someone's like, well, if you can do a 50 miler, you can do a hundred miler. And that always kind of stuck with me. Like, well, I don't know, man. Oh, really? (laughs) No, no. I mean, it's the, the, I mean, wheels fall off in a 50, um, and like a hundred is just, that's another race. Oh, yeah. I mean, like it, it, it might as well almost be different sports. Right. I mean, like, you know, cause I can like, it depends a little bit on your fitness level and training and stuff, but I feel like I can run, I can run most fifties, even like pretty hard ones. So say like a same one solstice, like same one solstice that has 12,000 vertical feet of climbing in 50 miles and it's it starts at lake city which is uh, like 8500 feet and everything it all goes up from there um and i can i, I finished lake city and trying to remember what my pr is at nine hours did i have my broken 10 hours yeah that sounds about right 9 15 trying to remember now that sounds <laughs> about right um so yeah like yeah nine nine hours 15 minutes i think was my pr or something like that and um, I used to like – you finish the race at 2 in the afternoon and um, it takes you about an hour to become a human being again. And then you go get like a great meal and you hang out in Lake City at, at the park there and watch the other runners come in. And you have like – you know you drink a couple beers and hang out with buddies and you smile and it's a fun day. And then like the next day you get up and you're not too sore and you drive home. Um, a 100-mile race um, – <laughs> That is going to be figure like for me, you know, from like a 20 hour ish effort, um, it takes you a whole night of sleeping to be a human being again. And, um, you're broken for like at least a couple of days. Right. It, it, the, 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 the impact of a hundred versus 50 is like, it's not even close. (laughs) A hundred is so much harder. (laughs) Do, Do you ever, do you do any like cross training at all? Or do you do pretty much just straight I, up run? I, um, my wife would love me to do, at least do some occasional push-ups, but no, I do, I do zero, <laughs> zero cross training. <laughs> Sports specific, baby. Uh, yeah, yeah. Not to mention, what's like, what's how is like a pectoral muscle going to help you in a hundred? Right. Yeah, I. That's. I just. I enjoy. I've always enjoyed like lifting weights, doing calisthenics, stuff like that, and I, it was actually a big part of the training for the stuff I'm doing, but it, it's not, it's not even on the same level. So it's, it's more of like, I'm in that completion mindset. So, but I wanted, one thing I was curious is how has your training changed from when you were 29 to 39 over the last decade? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so how's it changed? Well, the big thing is I work with a coach now okay. <laughs> and that, so like I, um, you know, he, he probably would have had me training differently at 29. Um, but it felt to me like at 29, I could get away with a lot more. Okay. Like I was just, um, as a case in point. So I ran Leadville in the Leadville 100 in 2008. 
and this is before Born to Run, and it's like it was still very much of like a grassroots um, event, and they weren't like there wasn't like you know like a big media circus there or anything. Um, and that summer, uh, so like the, my that summer, like in, I think in at the end of June, the beginning of July, I was in the High Sierra and did the Sierra High Route, which is like two hundred miles with a lot of vertical gain, and then. Uh, at like the end of July, the end of July, I went to Iceland and walked across Iceland for um, for like three or four weeks. Uh, and then the race Leadville is like the middle of August, so I came back and I stayed at a friend's house up in Summit County for like the week prior, um, just doing some light running. Um, and I ran, I placed second and ran finished in like eighteen hours. Um, <laughs> I could not do that today. Um, I could run 18 hours maybe, but it would be, I would, it would have to be very like intentional discipline training right. to get that kind of performance. Right. Yeah. And just and that, for folks listening real quick, that's, that's very high level elite, uh, a completion time. So just, just want to make sure we highlight that. Yeah. It, it's, yeah, it was a stout time for like, yeah, first hundred ever. Um, but it's just the sort of thing that I think a young a young athlete can get away with, where yeah. they just um, they're just 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 loaded with talent, and they're at their physical peak, and um, they're not an injury risk. And um, sure, sure. <laughs> so, whereas now, you know, I just um, I could probably get that. Probably, maybe I could I could maybe still get that out of my system, but um, I'd have to work out harder and be more be more intentional about it. Sure. Yeah. I was, I was hiking bear peak this past summer. I had my daughter on my back and there's this guy running up. He was probably mid fifties and he was on his like fourth lap a bear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he's telling me, yeah, we're going to run to uh Silverthorn in a couple of weeks. So, and sure enough, I uh-huh. saw him on Strava. They went from Boulder to Silverthorn just up and over. Damn. Like it's just a casual kind of, I can't remember the name of their group. It's, more than a casual run, but yeah, yeah. no, they were just, he was so, um, he was just so matter of fact about everything. Gosh, was it bird? Was that his name? Is it Scott bird? I can't remember the gentleman's name at the top of my head, but it's just uh, living around here, man. It's just like, I'm always very, uh, sure to stay humble in Boulder. Boulder's yeah. I and mean, Boulder's a tough place to be. Like, um, there are a lot of really exceptional athletes here. So, um, I mean, even, like I, I am, I'm talented, but, um, uh, I, my mom and dad didn't give me quite the right DNA sure. um, to be really good. So like I, in this town, I mean, there, I, I can name like a half dozen, um, you know, like, uh, like Jacob Riley, like Olympic trials, um, you know, second place finisher lives here in town. Right. I mean, the guy ran, the guy ran a 208, like, my PR is a two twenty eight. That's a twenty minute difference. That's almost that's like fifty seconds a mile. Right. Have you ever seen two people run around a track, one going fifty seconds a mile faster than the other? It doesn't even look like they're in the same race. <laughs> so I mean it's yeah. Um Boulder likes to like I don't know, I could I could imagine that conversation pretty easily happening. Like, oh, yeah. oh yeah, like yeah, we're gonna run to Solworth or next week. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of like a little bit of humble bragging on the trails too. Yeah, oh absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But what does your kind of high level nutrition look like just when you're kind of in, I'd say maybe off season between season, what's that look uh, like? 
it i'm not i'm not too particular about it okay. i do think um uh i do think like adhering to a couple of principles is useful so like um uh when you go to the grocery store stick to the outside aisles um that's a good thing like it's a good principle um uh if your grandmother wouldn't recognize it don't eat it another another principle um uh eating um i do try to eat sort of like I should, let me rephrase that. I do not shy away from fat if it's good fat. So right. like butter, cream, um, uh, like, you know, beef, like I think that's all that is fine. I I find I'm so fascinated by this, this like extremism with vegans and the carnivore thing and like one trying <laughs> to, com- you know, convince the other that they're the best religion it's so crazy to me it's like yeah i I like uh the term militant omnivore i think is where (laughs) where where i've i've found myself it's just it's so fascinating for me to watch this this battle go on and um yeah it really does have a uh religious theme to it so yeah on the top yeah it's you know i think i'm just as guilty but um Taking anything to the extreme is kind of annoying. Sure. For other people. Sure. Yeah. And on the topic of food, I think how I, I, I actually, my brother was talking about your, your bigger trips back, you know, this was probably 2010 ish, but I was searching Colorado hunting and your website was like the first hit. So you're, you're a self-described adult onset hunter. What got you into starting to hunt? Wanting to close the food chain. Feeling like if I if I was going to go to the store and buy an animal product, I should um, at least like some portion of that meat. I should know where it came from, and I should have done the done the, the, the duty. Sure. Yeah. So and um. So yeah, that's probably that's a good description. Of adult onset hunting. I mean, I didn't grow up in a hunting family. Um, like my dad was in the army and that was like the only time he ever shot a rifle. Right. Um, Massachusetts where I come from is not a hotbed of hunting. It's not in the culture, at least not in Southeastern mass. Um, so, uh, it's a big, it was a big like learning curve to get into. Um, um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good at tackling things like that though. So, um, I under, I got most of the things down really quickly. So like I was able to figure out like what gear I needed pretty quickly. I was able to figure out um, like how to field dress an animal pretty quickly. Um, I figure out how to navigate the, like the hunting permits. What is the hardest thing to do in hunting is actually, it's actually hunting. Right. If it was easy to kill an animal, they call it just shooting. Um, But this is hunting and that requires a lot of time in the field and understanding where these animals are and where they are going to be and how they move. And, um, you know, how they change, how like how their behavior is impacted by the weather, how it's impacted by hunting, like hunting pressure, and that just takes a while. Oh, absolutely. So, but fortunately, like the like um, I'm reasonably athletic, and the guys that I hike are reasonably athletic, so we can kind of get to some places that a lot of other hunters just wouldn't, just aren't willing to. Right. Was there something like like a book or something that really sparked that? that movement to get into it or was it just kind of a gradual thing that evolved over time? No, I think it was just being an adult. Like, I mean, I was, um, 
I started get, I started getting into it once I once I bought my house from Boulder. Um, was married. Uh, it just felt like something that I like that would sort of kind of round out the round out the life experience a little bit more. Okay. Um, and uh, um, I, I so it's like it was partly like a yeah, there was kind of a learning aspect with it, but the bigger thing was just it's it's weird to me to go into a store and buy like meat in a package, and you have no idea where they came from. Sure. I mean, you don't even know if that's just one animal or if it's like a combination of animals. Right. So, um, I just thought it was an important thing to do. Okay. So do you, do you only eat meat that you've killed yourself or is it? No, we still, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not going out and killing chickens. So, uh, yeah. And, and my, um, elk is a little, elk can be a little tough. I'm just, it's for, you know, it's not like, there's a reason that people love beef. Right. Um, it's like, it's you know, nicely marbled and it's, uh, it's not a strong, there's no like strong meat taste to it. Um, just cause of the way it like, just cause of what, how they're, how they're fed. Um, elk is, uh, it's very lean and, um, it, it's, they can kind of taste how taste, they can taste like what they've been eating. Sure. Sure. Or, or if, you know, or if it's like the first the first elk we ever shot it was an older cow and she just kind of tasted like an old cow. <laughs> like she just wasn't like, I mean, you know, it just wasn't. Okay. Um, whereas the other, the other animals that I've taken, like one was a young bull and the other was a, a younger cow and pretty remarkable difference in okay. flavor. Okay. Yeah. I always forget about that. The age, how much that matters. I, this past season, I, so it was actually my first elk, um, young cow. And it was, it's just like, it's the best game meat I've ever had for yeah. sure. But then like a mule deer that has a yeah. little bit of a different character to it as yeah. well. That's because so. they're eating other things too. Right. But yeah. I mean, I just don't understand like the idea of going out and shooting like, or like only shooting something with a big rack on it. I'm just like, well, like that to me says you're giving away all your meat because no one wants to eat that. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. What, what did those initial years look like? I mean, how did you, like, did you read online form? Like, how did you learn to hunt? You know what I mean? That- <laughs> well, the, so I had a couple of people who had reached, when I, I kind of put something up on my blog about, I must have put, this must have happened because I must have put something up on my blog. Like, Hey, I'm kind of getting into hunting or something. Okay. And a couple of people reached out and said, Hey, like I've been hunting for a long time. If you want to talk, like, let me know. And I started talking and I, I followed up on that and, um, uh, they just gave me a lot of like good advice to kind of get started. Um, I think the, I think the key thing was just getting some seasons in and just being out there and just like figuring out how the animals moved. I, we were, we were idiots when we like our first season we were so dumb, uh, quick story. So, Buddy and I go up there. We're up in uh, unit. Uh, it's three seventy one. Uh, it's up in the Gore Range, mm, just right. outside of Silverton. And we go up there on a Friday night, the night before opening opening day, and uh, we camped. And then in the morning, it snowed a little bit overnight, and um, we were planning on taking. We took this trail that kind of like cut across the mountain, and uh, looking for tracks. And sure enough, we came across a bunch of fresh tracks, and we looked at the map. And we're like, oh, like, I bet they're going to this lake. (laughs) 
I don't know like why we thought like they're going to go to this lake. So we, um, we, uh, we just, we put our shoulders over our, put our, put our rifles over our shoulders. And we just start like marching <laughs> through the woods towards this lake as if we're going to like sneak up on them and they're going to be like nice and broadside for right. us. Uh, and like, Hey, you know, Hey, Hey guys, just, you know, stick one right here for me. Um, and we're walking through the woods and I look up and suddenly there are like a dozen cows and calves looking at me like I'm an idiot. And then poof, they all disappear. And I didn't even have time to like get my gun off of my shoulder and they were gone. And, uh, you know, so that's like, it's just classic. It's just, like, it's just not, um, in comparison, like, uh, two, two years ago, um, buddy and I, uh, a similar story where we, uh, snowed that night, like about a, like six inches. We hiked up this trail, came across fresh tracks. We stalked a herd of elk for eight hours. Oh, wow. And, um, spooked them at the very end and didn't oh, get off a shot, but just a totally different, you know, we, we would walk five feet glass, walk another five feet and glass and walk another five feet in class. We did that for eight hours. That takes uh that's a special type of mental fortitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we knew, you know, we'd been there before. So we, didn't Oh yeah. Know. Yeah. That's, I, I was a firefighter, a wildland firefighter up in Montana, um, just out of college up in the flathead, which was awesome. But I bet that's basically how I learned how it was sitting the trucks with all these guys that were local and just taking in all their knowledge. But I just remember that first season out there, like very similar scenarios, just constantly spooking game, just like Elmer fudding through the woods versus like this, you know, kind of more tactical nuance. And it's the patience involved is especially the still, the still hunting in the dark timber. It's just, it's so patience intensive. It's just, uh, our brains haven't been wired that way with the tech recently, but yeah. Yeah. We're we're going in the opposite direction. It really is a game of patience. I mean, just, I mean, even just the idea of just sitting on like at a, on a, at a spot with a good view and glassing for hours. Right. And maybe seeing nothing, right. but you're there for hours. And that is like, that is, that is, that is proper hunting form. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That was my, you can't uh, just go make it happen. Oh yeah. That was, have you mainly, have you always done just rifle or have you dabbled in bow hunting at all or? Um, I can't just bow season is September and that's right. still prime high country season for me. So right. I'm usually working. Okay. I figured that might be the case, but yeah, you never know. But yeah, everyone who's everyone who bow hunts says they'll never rifle hunt again. <laughs> well, that, <laughs> so it must be pretty cool. You know, I was up opening day bow season up at, you know, I was maybe at 11, five, something like that glassing and saw a bowl, you know, first light that morning. And, uh, you know, it was so, the weather was so awesome. You know, I had less gear and I didn't see anyone the whole time. It was awesome. And then we were out first rifle up in the flat tops and that's like, you know, going to the circus. It was an orange vest. <laughs> oh my God. It was, I couldn't believe, I mean, and we backpacked in and, uh, you know, I just, I still couldn't believe how many people we were bumping even, even in that. Uh, well, there's a lot of horse so. use there. Exactly. Horses, yeah, that's what it you was. Know, horses. I mean, you like you think a, an athletic guy carrying a lightweight pack can get can get deep. Oh yeah. Look at what a horse can do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. 
do you do you have any desire to do any like I'll call it like expedition style hunts, like go up to Alaska or anything like that? Or are you no, looking more really. Colorado? It's, it's just not. I mean, if, if I'm looking for a wilderness experience, I'm going to just go backpacking. Right. If I'm looking to fill my freezer, I can do that pretty easily here in Colorado. Right. Well, we have the biggest herd in the world, isn't that? Or at least the largest. Biggest elk biggest herd in the world. Elk, yeah. Right? yeah. 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 That's something a buddy and I have talked about that a little bit. It's like, I do have a little bit of that desire to go to these bigger places, but it's also, there's something about the backyard hunting that's just a little more... I don't know. I just, I like it better. There's, there's, it's less of, um, like a sport versus like a, mm-hmm. like a harvest. I don't even know that mm-hmm. I, I'm having trouble articulating it, but there's a difference to it. And maybe you're more grounded well, to that, that area and location. Yeah. If you're hunting, if you're a meat hunter, like it seems like to go to Alaska, like and spend how much on an airplane, right. how much on a guide, how much on an out of state tag. I mean, you might as well just go to Whole Foods and they'll, <laughs> they'll sell you, you know, fuzzy the cow ground beef. Right. Right. One thing you were making me think of this with, um, you know, wanting to get your own meat, but there's a place I've ordered meat from them. They're called wild idea. Buffalo. Have you heard of those guys? Mm, No, they're out in South Dakota. It's, um, they work with Patagonia, but they're essentially wild Buffalo. I mean, they're on a huge range. They field harvest them. And, um, it's just a very different scenario than like something that's taken to a feedlot and a slaughterhouse and all that. So it's, I've listened to a few podcasts with the owners and he's actually written several books as well, but that's, you know, they're at least they're doing things in a very different way than what I would call industrial food or industrial meat. You know? So it seems like that seems to be a growing trend for, for this regenerative agriculture and just meat that's raised in a more ethical way. Right. In a little bit more of a natural way. Exactly. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. there's a there's kind of a limit on how much. Of, I don't think we could feed the whole world um, uh, that way. But um, yeah, if you can get access to that kind of meat, that's sure. I mean, it, I think hunting. The one thing you do realize when you with hunting is that you are what you eat. Right. So um, if you you know, if I've thankfully have yet to like to um, to shoot like a, a mule deer that was eating like acorns, but. <laughs> My understanding is that like the meat is like like basically unpalatable because of how bitter it is. Interesting. Okay. Um, whereas you know, if you shoot a, a white tail that's been eating like sugar beets and corn out of some farmer's field, just totally different type right. of thing. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah, I definitely yeah. had a sagey mule deer. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which you know, I honestly, <laughs> my wife did not like it at all, but I ate the whole damn thing, man. It's uh. What, the one thing I do like about, you know, the animals you've killed yourself is there's a, there's like a psychological side to like, I'm eating this kind of no matter what. And I'm going to kind of convince myself it's the best meat in the world mm-hmm. in that yeah. respect. So it's, yeah, it, that's an interesting, that's like, I always still struggle a little bit to you know, eat the meat that I've, that I have killed myself. Um, cause I think back at that, you know, that animal and that life I, that I took, sure. um, uh, I guess some people would say, well, then you, maybe you shouldn't hunt and then. Maybe, but then you maybe shouldn't eat a cheeseburger either right, with some, right. some cow that died on a feedlot in Nebraska. Right. Um, uh, you know, for the folks who are like, like sort of game meat curious, but are worried about like the game, like the natural flavors of it. Um, there are lots of ways to sort of bury the flavor of game meat. So like my, mine, like num, like the, the, by far the most meat that we have gets used for chili. 
Right. So just, you know, it gets buried in tomatoes and peppers and onions and beans and taco seasoning. And um, I also made a really yummy um, shepherd's pie the other night too. Okay. Using elk meat. And that's a similar thing where like, you know, it's, the meat is pretty heavily flavored with, so I guess it's wished, wished, Worcestershire sauce is the main thing that you're using. Mm, right. And then we used, um, we uh, made the mashed potatoes using some of our homegrown potatoes. So it was like a, like, I think the, I think the onion was the only thing that we didn't grow ourselves. Oh, wow, okay. Nice, pretty man. cool. Yeah. Did you get out this last season, this most recent season? Okay. No, just with the trips running it with my, I mean, normally I would have, but I, my guided trip schedule just ended late because trips that I had scheduled in April, May, I postponed October. Okay. So just swallowed it's the hunting season. Okay. What, what's the season look like as far as guiding? I mean, is it, so is it start in April and run through October or what, what's that? Uh, usually like? run the year to run, um, yeah, April through the beginning of October. Okay. And it's, uh, um, I have May and August off and okay. every month has strips. Okay. Nice. So yeah, I'm still at the, so this year we're running, um, this year I have 30, or is it 34 trips scheduled? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, which is quite a few. I mean, we've, we've got capacity for about 300 clients. Okay. Um, and, uh, I'm still trying to, you know, it's like, it's still a very intimate, small operation. So like I'm to date, I have either guided or been on site for every single trip that's ever gone out. Wow. But, um, there's this point at which like, I can't, it's sort of too big for me and we're kind of there. Um, so the good thing is I've got a great team. Like my guy team is really phenomenal. I've just I've got a lot of like sort of all stars of, of the through hiking and long distance backpacking world. And they're, um, they're great teachers and they're, they've got great personalities and they've been, been with the program for years. So when they, when clients go out with them, sort of a, I don't feel like they're getting something less because I'm not on the trip. Sure. Um, but it is, as you might've done with your business too, um, you kind of need to, when you, when you run your own business and own your own business, um, you don't have like necessarily a fiduciary responsibility to like shareholders to maximize profit. And you can decide that the size of my business right now is acceptable and um, I don't need to make it bigger. Um, so you can decide, you can make that decision, but then there's, you know, for whatever reason, um, there's so always the, the appeal of grow of growing. And, um, I think for someone who like myself, who like inherently enjoys running a business and the challenges that it brings, um, I sort of get sucked into that a little bit. Is, is that, so is your, do you want to keep growing and adding more locations and bringing more guides? Is that kind of your grander goal or? Yeah, still don't still don't know that for sure. Okay. Um, right now we're growing at a pace that I feel like I can still keep it manageable. Okay. Um, so like I I don't yet have a f- another full time employee, for example. Um, I've got a good I've got some guys who are helping me um, on the edges, um, and one of them like m- more like increasingly central to the program, um, but uh, I can still manage it. Whereas I think if I, I think if I make the decision of like, hey, uh, I think we're sitting on something really special here, and I think that we could, I think that we could, um, uh, like have as big a big of an impact on the outdoor community as like Knowles, then that decision is going to have huge implications for 
how I can be involved in my, like how far down I can like, basically like if I can still remain in the trenches Sure. after making that decision, that's a little harder. Right. No, I totally get yeah. it. What do you think yeah. with the, with the clients you have signing up? What do you think people, is there, is there something unique about the type of clients that are coming to you? They want to learn ultralight. Do they want to backpack a certain way or is it just kind of a mixed batch? Um, yeah, they're always, so there are a couple of different types of clients we get. Um, the, probably there are like two, the two biggest themes or the two biggest draws. One is that we're very instruction oriented. Okay. And so we're teaching modern backpacking gear and skills. And I don't even want to call it like lightweight backpacking because as far as I'm concerned, like modern backpacking is lightweight backpacking. Like there's just like this idea of like leather boots and backpacks that weigh seven pounds empty. Like that is, that's gone in the 1990s, like not coming back. So, uh, so we, we do a really good job teaching, um, and we tailor the education depending on the group. So like our fundamentals, three day courses, it's basic stuff. It's how to poop in the woods. It's how to set up shelters. It's how to find good campsites and how to, how to purify water, how to use your stove, how to read a topographic map, etc. Um, with the more advanced courses. So like when we run seven day trips up in Alaska, we're teaching them how to follow game trails, how to cross big rivers, how to um, deal with really inclement weather, that kind of thing. Okay. Okay. So, so there's a lot of learning that happens. And then the other thing that we're really well known for is doing um, uh, unconventional, bold, ambitious itineraries. So like we don't do, tours totally. <laughs> we yeah. like we don't um we don't take people a path dome right, right. it's just not Thank that's you. just <laughs> not gonna happen um uh so we um every itinerary every group that goes out does something different and unique um uh, um like the, the guides are instructed to listen to their group and and to sort of tailor the trip to to suit their group okay. as far as like where they camp each day, like what peaks they might do, what passes they might go over. So we try to spend a lot of time off trail and we try to be pretty adventurous. Okay. Hell yeah. So, right on. yeah. So it's a different program. It's um, like, I would say um, like compared to a lot of outfitters that I see, they just like, I look at their trip itineraries and my immediate reaction is boring. <laughs> um, I also look at a lot of them and, and think that it just must be, must be like a shit show. Like once they get in the field, because they do no, they do no like pre-trip planning. Mm. So like we have as part of our program, we do a nine week uh, planning curriculum and it basically walks the clients through the process that they would follow on their own to plan a trip. So we start off with like a conditions assessment where they research like uh, temperatures, precipitation, water availability, insects, sun exposure, um, and all these other like factors that sort of influence the gear that they're going to be needing. Um, and it kind of helps rule out a lot of the what ifs or just in cases, because they know sort of exactly what they're going to be getting themselves into. And then they, they have to submit to us a gear list and we review that, give them comments on it. Um, we do a, a, a module on food and, um, uh, give them guidelines for how much they should be taking. Uh, we do a module on uh, mapping and they're, they need to submit to us like a, a map set that they've created in, in one of the mapping platforms that we recommend. 
Uh, so there's this whole planning process. And what that allows us to do is that we, we, most of the time we, re, we get together at nine o'clock in the morning and we're hiking by 1030. There's no like day of preparation and there's no like clients don't show up and they're like, Oh, sleeping bag. Was I supposed to bring that? <laughs> totally. Totally. So, um, so that's kind of my other reaction to a lot of programs. And then when I look at someone like Knowles, like Knowles, Knowles is a really remarkable program. Um, they do an exceptionally good job with their um, like soft skills, like the leadership aspect of it. Right. Um, but they just like, they just haven't ever adapted. I mean, like they still kind of backpack like it's 1970. Sure. So like they have some lightweight courses, but um, it just, it seems like a relic. Sure. So. Sure. Two more questions, and then uh, mm -hmm. yeah, if you if you have if you don't mind. Um, so I was a, I was a wilderness ranger out in Sequoia National Forest in 2007, and that was kind of like my first full season out. And from that time, I've noticed just a lot change, mainly just volume of people out in the wilderness. I saw that a lot. I, the John I did the drummer chill in 2018. I just I couldn't believe how many people were on the trail, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I get an explanation for that. Go ahead. Go yeah. Let's keep going. So the question is, how, just what's your kind of high level? How, how has it changed in the last 15, 20 years? Just the cultural approach and what's the right word? What's the how, trend? Yeah. Yeah. I, what's I, the trend? I think I can, I think I can go there. So yeah. I mean, I'm only 40. I've been doing this not quite for 20 years. So I don't, I'm not, I don't have quite have the historical perspective as um, someone else would have. But um, so like many things, um, social media has amplified certain locations, certain certain trails, certain routes, and um, the things that have the things that were popular have become more popular. The things that weren't that popular have sort of remained undiscovered and empty. So, like um, I was just seeing the other day, like the Jumbo Trail is a great example right. where. Um, uh, I did the last did the job in 2011 and it was just right around when it was taking off. And then like with like every year after that, or maybe I was in like the process of that, like the amount of traffic on the JMT had like, like grown four times, five times, six times. And it's like 600% growth. Okay. This trail has been there for 50 years and like why suddenly in 2010 is it it's social media right period right um so and then like and the availability of information too is also like greatly increased so like if you were to search for like john your child gear list like you probably find 50 of them right like probably 45 of them are pretty bad but <laughs> the point is the information is out there sure and um the john your trail is like never considered to be a beginner's trail but somehow it's sort of that has like, you know, that has changed right. and now it's like very accessible. So like in another example would be um, there's a spot in North Carolina called Max Patch and okay. it's this beautiful dome or beautiful bald. Um, and I remember hiking through there on the Appalachian Trail and just like, wow, how pretty this is like amazing. And there was like no one there. It was in 2002. And uh, I just read the other day that um, – like this summer, the place was like trashed, like oh, hundreds no. of people camping there every night of the week because it had been discovered on social media. Right, right. So, you know, and that's like on one hand, like um, use of the outdoors is good. Or another example was um, I, uh, Ice Lake or Iceberg Lake in, just outside of Silverton. 
Oh, right. Um, I just saw this in like the Denver Post the other day. Um, I'd like, again, like, you know, hundreds of people, like 600 people a day kind of thing this summer. Oh, wow. Um, and so like outdoor use is generally good. Like, I think it's better. I think it's like better than the alternative. Like if you give me the option, like, Hey, do you want a large constituency of people who love the outdoors and use them? I'd say yes versus no. Right. But, um, you know, there's a, a land use issue of like how much, like how much use can an area take while like without impacting the land. Right. And um, I think in a lot of places, the, um, the, the land managers, park service, less so, but still, still this case, forest service, BLM, totally another level, very resource stretched right. just with manpower and funding. So, um, you know, when they get like, when, um, like San Juan National Forest realizes that there's 600 people a day going up to Iceberg Lake outside of Silverton. They can't, like, they don't have the manpower to, like, implement overnight, like, a permit system or, you know, send, like, have a full-time ranger station up there. They can't do that kind of thing. So right. that area just ends up getting getting destroyed. Right. Do you, do you think social media is kind of devaluing some of these places in the sense of, like, it's becoming... People are going there less because it's a <laughs> beautiful, their it's, it's, it's like the, the status symbol of the selfie, right? I mean, yeah, it's really, it's like, it's like, uh, um, it's like, this isn't the Mona Lisa. This is me right. in front of the Mona Lisa. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. Um, yeah, it, I've, I mean, I, I try to really, um, I have very, I take very few selfies cause I find the kind of the thing, whole thing, like pretty just off-putting. Sure. Um, interestingly, whenever I do put a photo up of myself on Instagram, it gets more likes <laughs> than like some, some beautiful landscape from like the San Juans or something. Sure. Um, so maybe that's part of what's going on there. But um, uh, I, I do think, yeah, there's a, there's a part of it just like, people have seen this place, then they want to be there. And now they're going to show everyone else that they've been there. And right. it's not necessarily, there's a little bit lost about just the fact that like in taking, taking in what is actually there. Yeah. I've just, it's almost felt like consumptive to me. Like you're almost taking something off the shelf and, you know, throwing it in your living room. So it looks nice or something like that. Mm -hmm. But last question. And again, I really appreciate you chatting with me. And this has been awesome. Last question. Any, uh, What's next on the FKT list? Anything on the horizon or are you just kind of taking it one year, uh, one month at a winter, time? It's winter. Yeah. So it's winter. Um, I don't think too much at this time. Um, uh, I'm back in like kind of marathon training. We'll okay. see what happens with, uh, we'll see what happens with, with spring races. Um, I would, um, uh, I still would, I've run, I, I, don't, I don't, like spring races work really well for my schedule. Um, they, like it kind of gives me a reason to train, train throughout the winter. And okay. then it sets me up really nicely. Like I kind of pull into the summer with a really high, uh, fitness level. Okay. Um, so yeah, maybe, um, I was, I was really, I really liked that fifth round of KT this summer. Okay. Um, just, there's something very cool about taking on this like wilderness high route with nine pounds of gear and on, you know, unsupported doing it on my own in a day and a half. Um, so I could see uh, maybe doing like doing some of the other high routes that I've put together in a similar style. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I remember, uh, I think I saw your post, you were going to do it. And then I saw 
one one of your few selfies, but it was you running down uh, to Bertha Pass, and it was like it was a really emotional moment, man. Like it really, it, I like it took me by surprise. Like man, I, I kind of got choked up a second. Just like you could feel the emotion coming out of completing that, you know. So it was uh, it was really cool, and it got me got me really psyched. So. Yeah, thanks for chatting well, with me, Andrew. I appreciate it. You bet. Yeah, it's been, been a nice conversation. Thanks thanks for asking me to join you. Absolutely. So, Hey, monkeys. Thanks again to Andrew Skirka for joining us on the podcast. And you can learn more about Andrew. You can learn about his trips on his website, andrewskirka.com. You can follow him on Instagram, at Andrew Skirka. And monkeys, if you are enjoying the Live Wild or Die podcast, I would be eternally grateful if you could leave a five-star review, share the podcast with your friends. And also, if there's someone that you'd be interested in hearing talk on the podcast, let us know. If there's a guest you have in mind, shoot me a DM on Instagram. Shoot us a note, info at monkey.co. Let us know, and your feedback is always welcome as well. Hope you enjoyed the show. Monkey on. Monkey on.